Hymn number 31, Jeff has asked that we mark that, and as always, we're delighted that for the opportunity to sing praise unto God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. The very words of Colossians 3, verse 16. As you and I teach and admonish one another in song, it prepares us by way of thought and reflection to allow God to teach and admonish us in His Word, which we shall do over the next few moments this morning. Brother Joe just read for us from the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the so-called honor roll of faith, and at least sections taken out of that chapter, verses 32 and 38 especially. And this morning, as we give some thought to a lesson entitled, Faith, Life, and Samson. I'm sure immediately our youngsters recollect, as do the old, those of us that are a bit older, the strength of Samson and the kind of Old Testament figure and character that he was. But isn't it a bit interesting that it prompts us in the thinking of some of the thoughts on this, on this next slide. You notice chapter 11 is often called the honor roll of faith. Chapter 11 in Hebrews that is. Individuals and such great men and women of faith Individuals, so strong were they, so powerful, influential were they. You and I could well expect to hear mention of Noah. And sure enough, verses 7 and following make a description of one who, following the command of God, constructed an ark, not only saving himself, but of course his family. And mention is made of Abraham, another towering figure of faith. With each one of them, you and I notice so many others. Sarah, Moses, Isaac. But on the other hand, you notice there are some listed in that that might appear on the surprising side. For after all, along with Moses and Noah and Abraham and the others, there's also mention of individuals like Rahab, an Old Testament prostitute. There's mention also of Jephthah. There's mention of Barak. And there's mention of Samson. I would ask you to look again at verse 32 briefly. And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong." waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report, through faith received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be perfect. A rather amazing passage in many ways, isn't it? And I would invite you this morning as we come to the bottom of that slide, to pick Samson out of that group and maybe cast a bit of a spotlight on life and faith and Samson. 
What might you and I learn from an Old Testament study of that man as to why he might have been included in a list like this one? And maybe, I believe, along the line, we shall appreciate some of the mistakes he made, and perhaps in rightness we can avoid them. As we do that, let's first, as often would be our need, to remind ourselves about the saga and the episode in the days of Samson. Why don't we do that by virtue of part one of our lesson, Samson's birth. As you'll see on this slide, it takes us back to the days of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Let me invite you to revisit some of the scenes. We'll not read a lot out of the book of Judges, frankly. But at least in terms of recollection, we can quickly be brought to mind and to bear on some of the great truths that took place concerning his birth. You notice as we come to Judges chapter 13, which is the first instance where we shall find the mention of Samson and that of his family, we find that the children of Israel found themselves in a very unpleasant and dire set of circumstances due to their own disobedience and their own rebellion to God. They found themselves oppressed, as you could well tell, by the Philistines. Throughout the book of Judges, we find that God would raise up a judge who would deliver them, lead them in paths of recognizing God's authority and commandment, and He would encourage them in the ways of righteousness. But after the judge died, they would lapse right back in to disobedience and idolatry. As chapter 13 opens, we're in one of those troughs again. The people have disobeyed. God has allowed the Philistines to overwhelm and conquer them. That brings us to appreciate what proceeds to, to develop. The people seemingly have an interest to turn back unto God, and God sends an angelic visitor to visit the family of a man named Manoah. In particular, he first comes to Manoah's wife. As this chapter reminds us of these things, these comments are in order. Manoah's wife then has conversation with this angelic visitor. And as that comes about, the visitor tells her expressly, you are going to conceive and bear a son. I would invite you to notice the language that, that, the, that the angel uses. Again, Judges chapter 13. In particular, the interesting statements that the angel makes are these. Verse number 5, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. He shall, be, he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. At this point, we notice that the angel has directly asserted that Manoah's wife and her name hasn't been revealed to us, but she would bear a son. But isn't it amazing that even at this point it was stated that he would in fact be a Nazarite even from the time of his womb. Perhaps in light of all that, you'll notice that the angel told Manoah's wife something very, very special. Notice verse number 4. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. Then again in verse number 7. Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb to the day of his death. This Samson, that was the name eventually given to the boy that was born, 
was apparently going to be an exceedingly influential one, so much so that the God of heaven foretold the fact that for life he himself would be a Nazarite. Directed unto God, you'll notice that no razor was to come upon the baby's head all the days of his life. But not only that, you notice the mother was told she was to eat no unclean thing even during the pregnancy. And furthermore, she was not to drink any wine or strong drink. Of course, ultimately, that would be characteristic of Samson's life as well. It might well be in light of those things. The woman obviously was very intrigued by what the angel said. She went back, shared with her husband what the angel had told her. He, of course, was exceedingly interested in that same information. The angel made another visit, and this time both of them had opportunity to ultimately converse with that angelic visitor. I would ask you to notice that they ask a great question. Note verse number 12. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child, and how shall we do unto him? I'm sure many a parent has asked a question somewhat like that one. How do I raise this child? How do I direct and encourage and instruct and teach this youngster in such a way that he will be a blessing and will follow the orders and the things that you, God, would have in mind? I'm sure any thoughtful parent, at least any Christian parent, has often wondered and prayed in relation to something like that. Again, the words, how shall we order the child? I would ask you to notice that among those thoughts, isn't it amazing how God answers? The angel of the Lord, verse 13, said unto Manoah, of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. The angel said, if you want to begin the process of ordering this child's life and directing him as it should be, follow the instructions that I have given. As you and I think about the faith then that came to be in the life of Samson, notice how it begins. That which Samson would ultimately be began with these precious words that the angel brought to his parents. And that, of course, had an attachment to keeping distant from what was unclean. Manoah's mother, even while pregnant, don't you take any wine or strong drink and don't you eat any unclean thing. You begin to set before the opportunities and the appreciations of a life devoted unto godliness in every respect. We as parents need to recognize our children in so many ways are far more apt to watch what we do than to hear what we say. Now, I'm not saying that they don't listen to what we say. For certainly it would be our trust and our hope that those would be embedded in their thinking, but make no mistake about it. If our life doesn't match what we say, they are far more likely to, with intensity, hear the nature of our life and witness the example of it than to merely listen to what we say. Surely the parents of Samson were told from an early time, this young child that's going to be born, he will be able to deliver the children of Israel. God was going to use him as an especial instrument of deliverance. But that would all begin with his birth. And it would begin with a devotion on their part to godliness and to what the angel had said. There is no replacement for the Word of God, is there? 
when we as parents or grandparents or others show a life of rebellion, a life of inconsistency, a life that is not commensurate with the things of truth, youngsters can pick up on it instantly. They know whether we're hypocritical or not. They know whether we mean what we say or not. No wonder the Scriptures so often remind us about the influential evil that can come with hypocrisy. Saying one thing but really living in a different way. We learn, among other things, several lessons that I've highlighted somewhat briefly at the bottom of that slide. This little episode reminds us of some additional truths as well. I've stated the first one, as you can well tell. Where does life begin? There is an amazing controversy, and it has been raging, of course, for probably four decades or so, about the moment that life begins, some, of course, would like to think that it begins at the time the mother gives birth to the baby. That prior to that, you can call it a fetus or a blob of tissue or whatever else you want to call it. But never does the Bible endorse such a viewpoint. We even noticed it here, didn't we? What was it that the angel said to Manoah's wife? Notice again verse number 5. Thou shalt conceive and bear a son... No razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. The prepositional phrase, from the womb, identifies there was an appreciation in the halls and the mind of God prior to the time she gave birth. From the womb, this youngster that would ultimately be known as Samson was recognized. Two verses later in verse number 7, you'll notice again, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. May we never then forget that the moment of conception is where the Scriptures identify as that point of beginning, if you please, for, for life. And what an incredible moment, of course, that it is. Later in the life of Jeremiah, we notice in Jeremiah chapter 1, God said, I knew you while you were in your mother's womb. Isaiah made a similar statement in Isaiah 49, verse number 1. All of those things highlighting for us what long ago in the days of Samson was set before us. At that point, might we notice yet another lesson. Just a very simple yet different reminder about the influence of parenthood. I would ask you to think about several passages that take thoughts that we, you and I have briefly passed before and used to elaborate them in a number of ways. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We notice that in, in statements like that one. It reminds us of Proverbs 22 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. When Manoah and his wife asked those questions, how shall we order the child? Notice, fathers, train up a child the way he should go. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As you and I then consider it so vitally important to make sure they're in Bible study, make sure we set before them an example of righteousness so that they can see in us what it's like to live a life of faith. There are so many youngsters in our world who have no influences, major influences at least, of righteousness in their life. Their parents, the Bible's not allowed in school any longer, it would seem. And what influences do they have then concerning the Word of God? Sometimes it's virtually none. 
And yet what Samson was ever to be was to be founded in what the God of heaven had revealed to his parents and of course through the nature of that law that he defended. Surely in light of those things, some additional verses are such comforting ones. When you and I reflect on Timothy for just a moment, there we find a young person. Didn't Paul of him say in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, he spoke about the faith that existed in Timothy's mother and also in his grandmother. Here were two generations that helped to influence and mold Timothy into be the kind of youngster and the kind of man that he became. You and I, of course, notice in our families and here at our church, we're blessed with youngsters and what a tremendous blessing, in fact, that it is. As the Bible lifts them up so highly, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, all speak about how great it is to consider the blessing of children. And yet we notice in passages like all of them, Timothy, as he was guided, led, and instructed. May you and I take before ourselves with seriousness that charge of directing and instructing our children in the way they should go. And realize God looks with blessing upon those parents who exert their efforts toward, toward that end. Maybe one final consideration would be that text in Colossians 3 verses 19 and following. Where Paul makes a statement to fathers and to mothers and to children. Highlighting the duties and the blessings and responsibilities with each one. So far as we've been reminded today about the simplicity that comes with trying to order a child the way you should go. Sometimes that's not the easiest task. For children can be independent. They at times can have a mind of rebelliousness. But surely we understand that if we train them in the way they should go and we set before them the influence of what God's Word has to say, we can hope with greatness of prayer that they will follow and grow to be individuals using their talents and their abilities to bless not only God's kingdom, but all those with whom they come in contact. What else about Samson besides his birth? So far, this man of faith had a very interesting beginning. However, notice that the scene turns rather darkly, rather quickly. What happened later in Samson's life? He obviously was born and he, of course, grew up. But I would ask you to notice Judges 13, verses 24 and 25. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Samson became an individual, of course, as the deliverer of Israel. And he grew and matured. But this becomes a time to think about some of his mistakes. I say that with care. I believe it would be easy to defend the fact Solomon, I'm rather Samson, made some terrible choices. Let's notice the first one. What about those with whom he associated the women in his life? Judges chapter 14, verse number 1 reads like this. Samson went down to Timnath and saw a daughter in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. What a mistake. Notice that this woman of Timnath, she was a Philistine. 
She was not a Jew. She was not of the heritage and the lineage of those that believed and trusted God. She was again a Philistine, a foreigner from the position and the respect of belief in God. Not only that, look at another passage if you would. I've asked you to notice Judges 16 verse number 1. Sometime later in Samson's life, Samson went to Gaza and saw there an harlot and went into her. Now remember, we have already identified Samson's name was in the honor roll of faith in Hebrews 11, and yet here he had dealings with a prostitute. Notice verse 4 of the same chapter. It came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. We all remember ultimately what Delilah did. But surely in light of this, Samson did not choose terribly wisely in light of the women in his life. As you and I develop that thought, I would ask you to notice the question his parents raised. Remember, they had already asked many years earlier, how do we order the life of this child? Notice the question they asked this time, Judges 14, verse 3. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, or among all thy people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. Even his parents ask, What about a woman among your brethren, among the Jews, among those who are Israelites? Are there no women here? You may notice he didn't directly answer that question. He just said, Get me the woman of Timnath. In that ancient day of the long ago, we began again to see that Samson made these choices and the Scriptures directly record them for us. As we develop that thought more clearly, doesn't it bring us to this observation? Again, Samson chose poorly, but doesn't it remind us about the seriousness that comes with the selection of a mate? I realize there are many in this audience that have already made that selection. So young people, listen to me with care, please. The God of heaven wants you to be saved. And He wants you to choose a mate, someone who will assist you on your journey to heaven. At this point, we've seen the mistake Samson made. And we remember that these individuals, these ladies that he chose, the influence they ultimately had on him and what Delilah did to him. She was a traitor to him. She never loved him, though he loved her. Ultimately, of course, we remember that as a result of her traitorship toward him, his eyes were gouged out, his hair was cut, his strength was gone. Samson erred tremendously by the selection of the women he did. Surely, in light of those things, look at what that reminds us today about our lot and our circumstance. We don't live beneath that Old Testament any longer in terms of law, at least. We have a better law a one that reminds us about the Lord's teachings under the Christian era. We know God has a people today, though, and it's His Christian people, those that are members of the blood-bought body of Christ. We find so many references to the blessings and promises and rewards bequeathed to them in the New Testament. But among all of them, we notice that that makes two broad categories. There are those that are a member of that group, and there are those that are not. I realize, of course, that as individuals select their mate, the one that they'll marry, it brings us to ask, what then about choosing one that's not a Christian?
what does the Bible have to say about that? And what do other statistics bring us to strongly and seriously consider? Here's a statistic I would ask you to note with care with me. How many times can you and I give thought to that situation in which a Christian falls in love with a non-Christian? With an individual who has not at this point in life made that consideration and the understanding of what comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faithful obedience to it. At this point, here's what we can appreciate. The statistics say this. I say this from four different sources. A significant study done in the state of Kentucky, one done in the state of Oklahoma, one done in the state of Arkansas and one done basically nationwide, all say there's a three a chance of three out of four that the one who perhaps begins that marriage thinking, I'll convert him or her. I will bring him or her to the gospel. I love him now, and once we're married, I, by influence, example, and otherwise, will assist and encourage his conversion. We only delude ourselves if we think that's likely to happen. Chances are three out of four, the Christian will eventually lose his or her faith. That's what all the statistics say. And as far as the likelihood of converting that one, only 10% of them are ever converted after they're married. Only 10%. The other 90% of the time, the influence goes by strongly the other direction. Notice what Samson did. Despite the warnings and despite the considerations of his parents, he chose to ignore that, to rebel against what they asserted and questioned and turned his attention, of course, toward this different arena. You'll notice at the bottom of the slide, the Bible, of course, encourages us to appreciate strongly this, this example that Samson said and, and to learn from it. After all, in Exodus 34, 16, the children of Israel were told not to marry outside of their brotherhood, outside of the Israelite family. And we remember the questions stated in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and following. God again commanded them, Don't give your daughters to the sons of foreigners, and don't give your wives again to, to them. As you and I come to the later Old Testament history, we notice in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 and following, Solomon made this mistake. And it was held up as an example for centuries of what not to do in ancient Israel. Case in point was Nehemiah 13, 26. There, the question was asked, don't you remember the mistake and the error that Solomon made? All of these things we simply say to lead us to the bottom too. The book of Ezra, and then of course in the New Testament. When we read verses like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, speaking, of course, to widows on that occasion, but marry only in the Lord. A powerful teaching and a set of considerations and thoughts that help us see that the selection of a mate is, quite frankly, the second greatest decision most of the time in life that a person will ever make. The first is obedience to the gospel. But secondly, that mate that we select likely may well determine where we spend eternity. May we select with wisdom and may we select with urgency in light of the declarations of the Bible. It is with those things in mind. Our second consideration then concerning Samson after his birth was the sad choices he made in this arena. 
But why don't we come to a third element, a third consideration of Samson's life as well. This one I've entitled as follows. Samson's faith. We remember all along that in chapter 11 of Hebrews, he's listed among the honor roll of faith. But now as you give thought to the way that the book of Judges reveals it, it does seem that Samson, despite his mistakes, was a man of faith. After all, his hair was not cut until the time the Philistines did it. Or may I say that Delilah, in light of trading him into them, did it. But you might notice it leads us to these comments. Judges 13 verse number 7 still reads it like this. These were the words from the God of heaven through that angel. Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So God foretold the fact this boy, this youngster would in fact through all the days of his life be a Nazarite. In the book of Numbers in chapter 6 we read about the, the life of a Nazarite. The strictness of it, the considerations that go along with living up to that high standard. And yet God said he would be one all his life. That leads us to maybe these comments. What might we say about those mistakes that Samson made? We've already learned he made several, but it would appear that he followed the advice of always coming back to God. It seems like that's a powerful set of advice for you and me today. We are Christians. We are individuals who are members of that body of Christ, but that does not mean that we will be sinlessly perfect. We will make bad choices, and we will say things and do things and think things that we should not. We may even involve ourselves in activities that ultimately we sorely regret later. But if we are individuals of faith, we will come back to the Lord every time. We will, with a tender heart, recognize the nature of those mistakes, and with haste upon that recognition, we with godly sorrow will repent of them and quickly return to the faith that we once so gladly enjoyed. No wonder the writer in Hosea says, Come now, let us return unto the Lord, Hosea 6 verse 1. It takes courage to do that though, doesn't it? It takes a willingness to admit, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I made a bad choice. And when that has influenced someone else, it takes enough courage to go to that person and say, I'm sorry, I should not have said it. I wished I hadn't have done it, and I would like to ask your forgiveness. It would seem that it's Samson, in light of the faithfulness with which he's described in Hebrews 11, did return even in the light of his mistakes and to make things right with God. It is interesting as you look at some of these characteristics. Samson wasn't the only one that made his mistakes. Noah made a mistake, didn't he? He committed an error, a sin. In Genesis chapter 9, even after the days of the flood, he got drunk. We notice that wasn't an approved thing. Abraham made his mistake, and to this day the world labors beneath the difficulties of what happened in regard to Hagar and Ishmael. You and I as Christians realize, Romans 3.23 still says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
We strive to live in faithfulness. And we hold high the banner of living righteously. But from time to time we slip and we fall. May we, like Samson, be a person of faith and come back to that first love. There are some additional verses that I would ask you to consider with me in light of this faithfulness and the fact that you and I must sometimes deal with the mistakes that we make in that way. In particular, those that are faithful will with tenderness realize the nature of that which is God's Word. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. In Lamentations 3, verses 41 and 42, Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in heaven. Even the writer of Jeremiah, even Jeremiah, the writer of that book, saw fit to give appreciation to the people, had committed errors and sins, and it was time to turn back to God. This very day, we so easily remember 1 John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10 say that to the one who says he has no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. All of us realize that these mistakes are going to occur and sometimes, of course, these directnesses that relate to sin. But let's make it right. Don't wallow in the sin. Don't live in it. For the only way to eliminate it is to have God forgive it. Ignoring it won't make it go away. Turning a blind eye to it won't change what was done. Only forgiveness. No wonder then in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and following, Jesus said, when your brother sins against you and asks you to forgive him, make sure you do it, for that will be the, what determines whether God forgives you or not. May we have that attribute, that desire to be right, of course, with him to be right with our Maker, the God of heaven. It would appear Samson had that kind of mentality. For after all, how did he die? You probably remember how the story ended in Judges chapter 16. Remember, Delilah had cut his hair and he'd been taken off by the Philistines' captivity? It was in that situation that we remember ultimately his hair started to grow back. However, he was blind. The Philistines were parading over him and they were making sport of the fact, look who we've accomplished and look who we've captured. And so he was led by a lad out and he put his hands on the pillars and he prayed to God for strength. And God answered that prayer. Now if God hears not the prayer of sinners, then we would not have expected God to hear that prayer. But he answered it immediately. And Samson's strength returned and of course he was able to take many of the lives of the Philistines as the building crumbled, killing him along the way too. The end of Samson's life, some of those final comments. Verse number 38 of Hebrews 11 says, The world wasn't worthy of them. These faithful individuals who, in despite the difficulties around them, strove to live in a faithfulness to God. What about you and me? The world isn't worthy of so many things that God has done for us. But today, if you're not right with God, might we use Samson as at least an, an indication, a motivation to make sure that all is well and all is right. We've learned, among other things, as this lesson comes to its conclusion, very briefly about these things. 
all of us as parents and as those who have opportunity to instruct and influence younger ones, may we take that task with so great seriousness. In fact, a poem that was written some years ago was just a brief reminder of that power, that influence that rests within that which is apparent. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore and I could change him nevermore. Oh, what influence a parent is able to exert. But in addition to that, to youngsters and others who are in position to select a mate, we've learned to choose wisely and not make the mistake Samson did. And then finally, we've learned about the faithfulness of Samson, that even though he made mistakes, he did come back to the Lord. And today, you and I need to ever remember the same. This song of encouragement has been chosen. Jeff has asked that we're going to sing that in just a moment. It is an opportune time, an invitation song, an encouragement song. If right now you find yourself separated from the Lord, maybe you've never obeyed the gospel initially. You're not yet even a member of His family and have never been. Why not today make it so? For after all, Christ Jesus will add you to His body, Acts 2.47. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess the name of Christ, and be baptized. If you have known that joy and that blessing but haven't been faithful to it, like in Samson's life, mistakes have clouded your way. Come back to your first love, Revelation 2, verse 5. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. And if we could help you, we would ask you, let us know, and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.